0: Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore major In this episode we're continuing the book Recundra's First Cruise. We're on part four of the reading and chapter eight. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can help support the podcast. And now on with the story. Chapter eight. Then began a wild but in a curious way rather enjoyable night. No misfortunes at sea are enjoyable in themselves. He is a liar who says they are, and he is a fool who courts them. But when misfortune has come against your will, when it is there, when you have shaken hands with it, realised it thoroughly and done what you think is the best possible thing to do, there comes a sort of release from further worry, which is, quite sensibly, pleasant. There was Recundra with her mainsail gone, proved incapable of beating under staysail and Mizzen, rigged as they then were in a temporary manner, careering through steep seas in a pitch-dark night with no sidelights and a binnacle lamp that would not burn. On the face of it, misery. Yet there was no misery about it. While in that narrow bay I had been very much afraid, but here, in the open sea, things were much better. Besides, we were doing the things which I had myself urged as the right thing to do, it was my own thing, this careering business out here in the dark, and I had the joy of possession. I was still afraid, of course, but knew where I was and knew what I had to avoid. I had to prevent Rakundra from being blown too far out to sea, to prevent her from working sideways to Nargan Island and to make headway, if possible, towards the shallow bay on this side of Surup, without going on the rocks, off the near point of it and without getting into the bay until it was light enough to see what we were about. Wind and sea had clearly made up their minds to knock us and blow us to Finland, or if we insisted on working sideways, to plant us on Nargon like many good ships before us. Rakundra and I were of a different determination, and as we careered in the dark over waves which always seemed bigger at night, I had the definite impression that Rakundra was enjoying it also in her fashion. I find myself, he who does not sing in happier moments, yelling songs like Spanish Ladies and John Peel at the top of my voice. Then the cook struggled up the companionway with a sandwich. She asked with real inquiry, are we going to be drowned before morning? I leaned forward from the steering well and shouted, why? Because I have two thermos flasks full of hot coffee. If we are, we may as well drink them both, but if not, I'll keep one till tomorrow morning. We kept one. We drank the hot coffee from the other and ate a huge quantity of sandwiches. The more we ate, the better things seemed. We grew accustomed even to the din. Douses of spray merely made it seem worthwhile to have put on oilskins. The howling of the wind and the recurrent crashing of the waters became monotonous. The cook, who had been doing her work as calmly as Rakhundra, and like Rakhundra was enjoying it, fell asleep in the middle of a laugh. She was tired out, and when the next big splash woke her, I sent her below to lie down, knowing that there would be plenty of work for her in the morning, whereas there was nothing she could do at the moment. I do not believe she has forgiven me yet. After that, Pecadot light and Surop light and the far away flash of nargon were my companions. The riding light, the only one of our lamps that would burn except the swinging lamp in the cabin, I had under my knees in the steering well. With an electric pocket lamp, I had a look at the binnacle now and again. And so we went on, hour after hour, until I too fell asleep. I suppose everybody who has spent long hours at the tiller of a little boat has done the same, but I admit I was startled the first time I woke up to find myself in the steering well of Recundra holding a kicking tiller with the dark in my eyes and a great wind in my face. The next time it happened, I said to myself, done it again and began pinching myself as hard as I could, in muscles, in any places it seemed to hurt, in the effort to keep awake. It was no use. The lamp was burning all night in the cabin, and light came up through the round windows in the cabin roof. I had shifted the riding light from the floor of the steering wheel to the seat beside me, and a faint divided light was thrown out on the staysail, and the upturned shape of the dinghy lashed underneath it on the foredeck, and these, in successive dreams took different shapes. I found myself wrestling with a large and difficult collar stud stuck in a stiff shirt and only slowly came to understand that the collar stud was the tiller and the white shirt spreading somewhere before me was the lonely staysail. A minute or two later the dinghy was the moulded base of a huge table and the staysail was a corner of tablecloth almost annoyingly put on crooked. Or do put that cloth straight, I woke saying and found myself as before. Keeping Rakundra up into the wind. I think that's the secret. One could not go to sleep at the tiller with the wind aft, but when close hauled, steering is done so much by feel, especially in the dark, that the ship takes care of the sleeping helmsman. I never once woke with sails flapping and never once to find that I had fallen off the wind. Rakundra took care of her skipper, who was far too tired to take care of himself. Then Suddenly, the sleeping fit passed from me and I was extraordinarily awake, most unpleasantly aware of what I took to be some martial idiot rushing about with a little ship of war, showing no lights but the occasional disconcerting flash of a projector lamp. Also, at that time, whilst we were bucketing about without side lights, a thing of infinite hate, the lights of a steamer came up from the west, as I learnt afterwards, our old friend the Baltabor from Riga. Suddenly, with a relief which let me know how great the strain had been, I knew that the eastern sky was distinguishable from the sea. Day was coming at last, and with day the possibility of doing more than hold our own, if indeed we had been doing that. Day came, all the light before the day, and I found exultantly that I was now not sleepy at all. We had done much better than I had expected in the dark, we were well clear of Nargan and about two miles from Surop. I held on joyfully, no longer thinking of calling the ancient, who at last, when the sun was up, came on deck and, with that little faith of his, as once before he had looked for Riga, now looked for Peykarot. Everything was hope. We could see what we were doing, and the ancient dug out the trysail from the solid mass of gear and sails stowed in the forecastle during our hurried departure. We disentangled a halyard and got the trysail up. Warship, after an ineffectual attempt to go about, and stood in on the port tack for the port of fall and the hollow of the broad bay west of Sudop, to get under the shelter of the land for repairs that would let us hoist the mainsail again, without which we were so badly crippled. At last we got into fairly smooth water, we drank the hot coffee from that other thermos flask, the cook worked one of her miracles and produced great bowls of porridge. The ancient mariner made a wonderful job of a manila rope substitute for gaff jaws, this done the cook took the tiller while we took off the trysail and hoisted the main would it stand or would it not it stood most beautifully and with singing hearts we went about and on the starboard tack cleared the rocks of syrup and then coming nearer to the wind held on till close by cape bassanova the southeast point of Nargan, where years before we had landed on our first voyage in slug then we went about and stood due south the wind having momentarily backed to the east. We stood into Zegelsko Bay. Raval was in sight for a moment, then blotted out by a big rain squall. We went about, thinking to clear Carlo, but the wind shifted too and had such strength that even with eased mizzen, it took all the strength I had to keep her off the point, which she seemed determined to ram. I ran her off a little whenever I got a chance, but there were moments when it was impossible to do anything but laugh and Carlo, now and again invisible in the squalls, seemed most unpleasantly close. These squalls were, I think, the toughest wind we had throughout the storm, and Ricundra, forced over by them, and meeting the short, steep waves of the entrance to Reval Bay, shipped more water than throughout the whole of the rest of the passage. The Ancient had left the forecastle hatch open under the overturned dinghy, and until the cook, guessing what had happened, went forward and closed it from underneath, each wave that came over... Sent a deluge below, holding on in the cabin in a sort of whirlwind of flying pots, pans, apples, pipes, and other loose lumber. The cook was persuaded we were going to run her bodily under water, but Racudra's admirable nose took care of that we had a wet but exhilarating time, clearing Carlo after which the squall slackened, and we stood right across the bay towards the low hill and windmill by Miraando and went about there and tagging with long legs and short made our way up the bay towards the three ships of the Estonian Grand Fleet and the rock and spires of Raval dim in the rain, with each tack getting more into shelter and finding things easier until, at last, we rounded smoothly into the harbour, picked up a buoy, warped into a berth by the yacht club mole, made all snug and had a pretty decisive supper. Chapter 8 Port of Raval I suppose it is as true as many things in history that Linda, with whom Estonia chronicles begin, was born from a grouse's egg. She refused the sun and the moon in marriage, giving them the soundest categorical reasons for their rejection, and married instead the young giant Kalev, who, after a seven days wedding feast, drove off with her in his sledge and came to this wild country by the seashore. Their son, the Kalevipogue, after whom the Estonians named their ships, cleared parts of the country from rocks and made places fit for corn growing and pasture, slew all the wild beasts, took part in the struggles of his people against the Christian invaders from Germany and ended in hell with his fist stuck fast in the doorpost thereof. The old giant Caleb died here at Raval and Linda heaped stone after stone upon his grave and so made that proud hill of Raval by the Baltic Sea to carry in stone and mortar the record of over 700 years of Estonian history. Up there on the skyline are fortifications built by the Danes. There are walls and towers built by the Swedes. The old town under the shadow of the rock is a legacy from the Hanseatic League. There is the ancient Lutheran church with the skeleton carved by the doorway, There are the narrow houses of the German merchants, some of them with the old portraits of the burghers still on the walls. Up on the hilltop the houses of the barons, and over all the monstrous gold-domed Russian church, breaking with a touch of Byzantium, the Gothic and Scandinavian outlines of the place. But for the Russian church, Raval is in colour, a little like Shaftesbury. In form its rock is a little like the Rock of Edinburgh, if only that they were set in a plain on the edge of the sea. Most of all, it is like those nightcap country towns that the old German wood engravers used to put into their backgrounds. But I know Ravel too well and like it too much to be able to write of it with the aloof ease that is only possible in writing of chance acquaintanceships with towns and people. Sailing in there is always for me like coming home, and I hardly know how to give a picture of it as if I were seeing it for the first time. Coming in as we did on this occasion in a series of rain squalls, there was little of the town to be seen, but going home to the hills a man does not feel their presence the less if the tops are veiled in clouds. Everything in the harbour was an old friend. There were the little tugs, the Kalev and the Walter. How often their wash had almost rolled me off the roof of Kittywake's cabin, on which I used to sit here in the evenings watching the ship's. There was the old grey elevator that, somehow though modern, carries with it a suggestion of Danzig and the Hansa towns, rising high above us amid a forest of masts, for the basin beside it was full of schooners and cutters. Beside the quays were the little steamships Eber, Monk and Kalevapog, busy as usual on their regular trips to Finland and Stockholm. The same old motorboat on the Yacht Club quay was undergoing the same old repairs, and even the buoy to which we made fast was into which I had often bumped in bringing the erratic Kittywake home at night. Why, Kittywake herself, unkempt, dilapidated, lovable little thing, was moored just on the other side of the mole. The stranger going ashore for the first time in Raval, from his little ship, need ask no other guide than the Castle Rock. Leaving the harbour, he has but to follow the road that leads towards the hill and he will enter the town as it should be entered through an old stone gateway defended by a tower with stout and lofty stone walls stretching to right and left. He will then walk on a cobbled street or on a very narrow pavement under ancient houses until he comes to the foot of the rock. He can then walk by a zigzag path up the face of the cliff, but if he is wise and would not spoil what is before him by preliminary tastes, he will keep on under the walls till through a narrow street he comes to another fortified gateway and going through that will climb a long slope within the inner wall until he comes by the fantastic Russian church to the upper town, as it is called, built on the summit of the fortress. Here is the old house of the Russian governor, where the Estonian parliament meets. Still working upwards, he will read on the doorways into old square courtyards the names of the old German families that once ruled the country, and he will come to an old church with great trees so bent with age that they stretch across the road and seem to try to sweep the opposite pavement and turning then down a narrow lane, going through an archway, crossing a yard, and going through yet another arch, he will come out upon the battlements, and have before him the finest view to be obtained in any of the Baltic capitals. He will be looking down sheer precipice on the ancient walls of the lower town, with the round grey towers that rise above them, and the tall dark spire of the church of St Nicholas of the Sailors, and far over the roofs of the town... He will see the harbour with the ships coming and going about their business, while before him lies the great stretch of the Blue Bay, steamers lying in the roads, white-sailed yachts, sedate schooners slipping away northward to Finland far beyond the little island of Wolf, or moving westward between Nargan and the mainland, where again it's open sea and clear horizon. I cannot believe that any man who has looked out to sea from Raval Castle Rock can ever be wholly happy, unless... He has a boat. My imaginary wandering Freemason of the Sea, warmed by the thought that he has a share in all this, that he too can sail past those distant promontories, since his little ship is awaiting him in the harbour, will then go down from the battlements by the rock path until the sea is hidden from him, but only for a moment. He will cross the railway lines and come out on the stony foreshore, where he will find a little square harbour for the shallow draft fishing boats and a row of wooden trestle piers where those who have looked from the rock above and have no boats to try in vain to salve their pain may try and hire boats from other men. Here too, he can listen with amusement to the buying and selling of every sort of small craft which goes on with all the cheerful mendacity of a horse fair. This is the last refuge of boats discarded from the yacht clubs and here all kinds of ancient ruins are given a coat of paint and bought by the unwary and sold by the cunning who know that those who are willing to buy have looked down from the battlements above them and now must have a boat or die. On the foreshore men are always at work repairing little ships and you may find there illustrations for a whole history of Baltic boat building. Only a year ago I saw here one of the early fishing boats that were brought from the upper reaches of the Volga, a flat bottomed boat with planks sewn together with strips of leather. In old days these boats used to be brought to Revel by fishermen from Ostashkovo in the interior of Russia who came for the summer fishing season sold their fish and their boats here and bought little Estonian horses with which they then returned by sledge overland in the winter to build new boats and come again next summer Author's note Not far from here in a river farther along the coast I have seen a quite new dugout boat like the boats of primitive man hollowed with the axe out of a single tree. On a Russian river, I have been in a boat scarcely less simple, with an Evinrude motor fixed over the stern, so near in Eastern Europe are the earliest and latest stages of civilization. But if Castle Rock and Stretching Bay and intimately disreputable foreshore are among the glories and delights of Reval, they are not the town itself, which, clustered about the foot of the rock, has of all the Baltic capitals least of the vices of a town and most of the virtues of a village. Nobody in Raval tries to dress well, with the exception of a few young women, and they, by the manner of their failure, do but emphasise this cardinal virtue of their native place. Top hats were unknown there until the British consul and vice consul spread awe and astonishment by wearing them on state occasions, thereby startling the ministers into ordering at least two from England for the use of the cabinet. Not that for a moment I would be thought to laugh at men who had the courage to carry through a foreign policy against the almost open threats of greater powers and have had the satisfaction of seeing almost half of Europe follow at their heels. I do but lament the introduction of those four top hats and recognise that we, and not the Estonians, are to blame for them. Anyway, they are very seldom to be seen and I think that after the first moment of horrified excitement Everybody has come to realise that Raval is not the place for them. In Raval, nothing is done for show, except perhaps an occasional march of troops or fire brigade, and that you must have in any capital. There is no single street in Raval given up to fine shops and parades of fools. Everything is decent, homely and unflurried. There are shops, of course, but the buying and selling in the town is for the most part done in the older manner. The Raval housewife does not go shopping for her day's provender. She goes to market with a big string bag in summer and dragging a little sledge at her heels in winter. In the middle of the town, under the big Estonian theatre, is a wide open space where there is a food market and beside it, little wooden booths where you can buy string bags or even baskets to carry your food in, doormats to wipe your feet on when you get home, I bought one for the feet of Rakundra's visitors, and saucepans in which to cook it after you have arrived. The market is made up of rows of tables on trestles, each with a little roof. By old tradition the sellers of each particular kind of goods keep together. In this way they can keep a check on each other's prices and you, interested in quality, can compare one cabbage with another or prod the breasts of half a dozen chickens on different stalls before you make your choice. In one part of the market you may walk between rows of boxes full of pike, some of them still alive in bathtubs, Big perch two and three pounders are not the rarity that they are at home, and baskets full of the little shining kilos. In another part of the market you are among green vegetables. In another you may buy hunks of meat wrapped in Estonian newspapers and dripping blood and printers ink. At one side of the square are the little carts which have brought all this food in from the surrounding country. And there is a row of booths where as you pass you can hear the loud, cheerful noise of people drinking tea with great pleasure and bits of sugar between their teeth, and there are the farmers and their wives, sitting by the samovars on the trestle tables, eating enormous quantities of sausages. Besides this market, there is another under the walls, for clothes and old iron, where I have picked up a block or a shackle now and again. This market is called Lousy Market by the inhabitants of Raval, and they ought to know. Both markets are in perfect keeping with the medieval character of the town. Recundra lay five days in Raval while her designer examined her all over inside and out to see what the builder had made of his dream and set himself to put right as many as possible of our makeshifts. He made a new horse for the mainsheet to work on, gratings for the seats in the steering well and battens for the sails, besides putting on the best of his old workmen to repair our damaged gaff. Meanwhile we bought what we could of the things we needed but finding that there were no blocks in Raval to fit our ropes, we decided to sail over to Finland, and to finish our fitting out in Helsingfors. We rigged a yard for our square sole, but found that the sail was too small to be of real use. The making and mending took time, and meanwhile, the southeast wind that would have carried us to Finland in a few hours was blowing itself out, day after day. We had plenty to do, of course, as one always has in even the smallest of ships. The gangway plank that we had rigged up over the stern was continually trodden by Recundra's visitors, We too had many friends to see in the town, and now and again went visiting in the dinghy in the harbour. Baltabor was there, having got in the morning of the day that we arrived, and Captain Wally was to have lent me a Polaris for the business of correcting Wakundra's compass, but, clearing unexpectedly as we had done in Riga, steamed away with the instrument on board. Then there was another English ship in the port, the Maid of Erin, a fine British Channel pilot vessel, catch-rigged, which had taken a cargo of boots to Petrograd. Her owner was a true merchant adventurer who told us that his real business was the breeding and selling of polo ponies. Without wishing to hurt Ricundra's feelings, we envied a little the broad decks and roomy hold of the Maid of Erin. She was three times our tonnage, of course, black and piratical in appearance, but what a ship to make a home of. Her owner, on the other hand, had plenty of admiration for Ricundra, so we parted with mutual good feelings, made still warmer on our side by a present from the maid of Erin, whose owner hailed me as I was rowing back in the dinghy from getting my papers cleared for Finland and handed down a cake of plug tobacco, worth to me then many times its weight in gold. The ancient and I shared it between us and often as we smoked spoke of that fine black pirate catch and wondered if we should meet her again. She was gone when we returned from Finland. Well, that's the end of today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed it. It brings me so much pleasure to be able to read these books and to bring them back out into the light from dusty library shelves and uh, share with you the fantastic uh, stories which we're we're seeing unfold here. This book, uh, Recundra's First Cruise, is 100 years old this year, and yet I think all of us are already able to see that with a great writer like Arthur Ransom, um, you've got some really special way of connecting through to people who love doing the same things we love to do out on a boat, enjoying themselves. So if you like this kind of content, if you want to hear more of it, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Five dollars a month helps to support this podcast, which goes out 20 times a month. But starting now in January of 2023, there's a whole extra series of books being read over on Patreon. Um, those are available for patrons of every level. So a whole extra series of books there in the same line and things I'm sure you'll find very enjoyable. So that's patreon.com forward slash The support the podcast and get your hands on those extra sailing books. Great, well, thank you very much for listening and I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Cheers.